What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon, one and all. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post. I've been in it since Andrew Jackson founded everything else. And I'm in it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And now I am happily on WABC. At the moment, for whatever the reason, I would like to pee on Florida. It's enough with people schlepping to Florida. Florida began... 1,400 years ago. Nobody younger has been there since. Those in the state now could have been the original settlers. The average age of people schlepping around Florida is now deceased. Reports of how wonderful the place is start mouthing the minute transplants leave the restroom at JetBlue because at that age, the first thing they want to do when they get off the plane is pee. The state's got beaches and sand and sky and ocean and warmth, also hurricanes, galleries, and crocodiles, also palms, but not leafy palms that provide shade for juniors, outstretched palms that provide service for seniors. What kind of palms? These palms have specific assignments, like driving Madam's car by day, by night, just simply driving Madam. Listen, me, I'm a New Yorker. Like it, love it, I don't care, I'm a New Yorker. You can listen to me wherever you are. You can love your place. I love mine. I am born here bred here, educated here, schooled, work in New York. Even my dog is a Yorkie. I do not intend to leave here. Should, pardon the vulgarity, Mayor de Blasio, the late Mayor de Blasio, ever come back, I would still be here, no matter even if he's here. These cheapo Dutchmen, those cheapo Dutchmen who bought the place a few hundred years ago, they didn't love this city more. That's even though it costs more than they bought this city to park your car today. Transplants to Florida first learn the word condo. The next requirement is thinning blonde hair and fat, cheap sequins. It's book clubs, bridge clubs, garden clubs. It's art shows. It's tea, brunch, lunch, cocktails, drop-ins, manicures, coffees, cocktails, card games, shop openings. Also, talks, fundraisers, finger food at my condo, cheese and crackers at yours. It's make busy because there's nothing else to do. You know why? Because nobody has any work to talk about. 
The late dinner reservations are 5 p.m. By 7.15, restaurants are already resetting for prunes and oatmeal for breakfast. New, new transplants are busy. The gents learn to pull on green and white checked pants for golf. The ladies, they do Botox, doctor appointments, or hospital benefits. And the conversation? You know how cold it is in New York? Their friends up north have already gone to that great big warehouse in the sky. They don't have any friends who are working, so there's no longer jobs to go to. With Social Security comes no appointments to keep, no assistants to harangue, no bosses to placate, no calls to return, no deals to make. Florida is the used-to-be's. It's heavy-duty BS. Forget Mother Nature. It's Father Time. Talk in Florida is always how VIP they once were and are no more. So the question is, how often can you discuss your favorite actress, Lana Turner? The big draw is manufactured social life. We're talking sequins, beads, bright colors, bows, paillettes, fringe, jewelry, big flowers, big hair, big BS. The next most prolific item, hearing aids. Florida restaurants come with whirring fans, plus broiled fish, no gravy, no dressing, no sauce, no fried, but not acoustic ceilings. They can't even hear themselves tell the waiter, no salt. Everyone shouts, nobody hears. In Palm Beach, you read collagen lips. Senior seniors, senior seniors, shout to make themselves heard. Dinner? is the big thing in Florida, the one late-night event after 5 p.m. It's always early, because bedtime down there is 9 o'clock. It's all social tables of 10, shouting. They may be sitting in Coral Gables, but you can still hear them in Forest Hills. New York's grid is laid out. We got us avenues. Streets. In our civilization, even migrants and vagrants find their way. In Florida, not. This state has cutesy towns like Apalachicola, Okahumpka, Chattahoochee. Go meet somebody. Lots of luck. And why am I staying all this? Why? because I want them to shut up about knocking New York. So now that I've gotten that over, I will go on to other things. But that's really what I wanted to do and, and say. So if you don't like it, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But now I will go on to other things. New York. I did New York in one night. 
It was the elegant, classy Le Bernardin. It's three Michelin stars. Eric Repair, in his Chef Whites, greeted the Atlantic pair who came straight from JFK with luggage for his signature eight-course tasting menu. So classy, so expensive, but so classy. Then I did part two of New York, a new place called Freaky Tiki. Pay attention. It's an underground, crappy, 1,200-square-foot nightclub bar. It's on 44th and 9th. Getaway cars don't even drive there. They schlepped me through a secret back entrance, around a kitchen and a locker room, past a rusty elevator door, down a crappy hall, alongside laundry in a basement steam room, sidestepping a boiler, and wow, I entered this brand new nightclub, which is what a realtor might call a teardown, otherwise known as a crap joint. This is the newest nightclub in New York. I'm told it's for seniors who go after work, actors, rather, who go after work, like in a leap from Jerusalem, also there was Tova Felchu, who played Golda Meir on Broadway. This place is open 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. Cocktails are $16. Bites are under 20. The proprietor, whose name is Greg Noble, produces Broadway musicals, like Parade, which is coming this spring. And standing there, ass to ass, the capacity is 100 but the only chair was under the regal behind of the Saloon Queen concert, Suzanne Barch. She is a lady who does nightclubs, and it was crowded. Let me tell you, kids, Rikers is roomier. So, forget if you go there, black tie, or any tie, or shirt or even a clean body. But go, it's part of New York. And right now, I, who am also part of New York, am going to take a station break, and then I'm going to come back with the people you would love to hear about. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now about to talk with Julian Schlossberg, American movie theater and TV producer. He's been a college lecturer. He's been a TV host. He was born in New York. He was in the Army. He went to NYU, and he's now on the phone. And he's just written a book called Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. What does that mean? What's it about? Well, I must say, Cindy, it's first of all great to hear your voice and to talk to you again. You've been a wonderful person in my life, and I thank you for, over the years for your support. Now, about me book. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's a great deal of things that you and I both grew up with, a, a city that's changed a great deal now. But it was a great time to go to Broadway. You remember movies would open for one year, they'd play downtown. They yeah. didn't go to thousands of prints. They were one movie. The, you know, we'd go to the DeMille or we'd go to the Criterion or the Aston or the Victoria. The whole time was different. And I talk about that time and then I get into how I became a producer because I started as a taxi driver in New York City and that was a whole different world then, as I said. I had my own radio show. In fact, Joey Adams, your husband, your late husband, was a wonderful guest on my show. He would tell stories. We'd talk about the Borscht Belt that he wrote, that book he wrote. And it was a wonderful time, that, that, that time of growing up in the city. Okay, how became... did you go from the Roxy and the Paramount Theater and Radio City Music Hall to being a TV and producer in movies? Well, what I happened? Think... What did I miss? Uh, I, I've been trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> I I think what happened was that I had such a great love for show business, and I wanted so much to be in it, that I was able to start at the ABC network in yeah. the early 1960s and uh, kind of worked my way through television and television syndication. And then into I went to Paramount Pictures as a vice president of production, and finally, I decided to open up my own company uh, called Castle Hill Productions. A lot of people think it was called Castle Hill because there's a Castle Hill Avenue in the Bronx, but it wasn't <laughs> for that reason. Yeah. The reason, Cindy, was that Schlossberg in German translate a Schloss, as you know, as a castle. Yes. And Berg is either a hill or a mountain, but... I thought, I better not go from Paramount, and they have a mountain, to put my castle on the mountain. So I called it a hill. So it became Castle Hill Productions. Mm -hmm. And I started that company, and off we went. We, we, uh, we, had, we started getting movies. Uh, I started being able to pick up movies. I actually stalked, couldn't do it today, I stalked Elia Kazan. He had, oh. he had his office in the... Uh, it, right behind the Victoria Theater on 46th and Broadway. Yeah. And I looked him up in the telephone book. That's kind of a weird thing to even do in those days. And there it was listed uh, with a B of Broadway address, and it was called B for business. I went there, I waited outside, and I followed him home. I was afraid to talk <laughs> to him. I, next day I did the same. And then the third day, he turned around on 49th Street. You know, you never forget these things. And he was a short man, and I'm about six foot. And he looked up at me and says, who are you, what do you want, and why are you following me? <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Oh, how wonderful. And, tell, me, tell me about some of the other beauties that you, you were with, like a Dustin Hoffman or a Jane Fonda, who was never the sweetest creature alive. What was it like to work with these people? Well, some of them were terrific. Some of them, as you know, are not so terrific. I think the, the, the greatness for me, the great people that I've worked with that I really admire the most and I write about in the book were Mike Nichols and Elaine May, because these were two of the most, two, well, Elaine is alive, uh, but two of the most brilliant people I ever met in and out of any show business. Um, and, and to work with them was just fun. I mean, Mike, Mike would, you'd say, Mike, we would go to the Russian tea room and have lunch, and I'd say, Mike, have you seen the, the new movie Joan of Arc? And he'd say, no, but I think half the country thinks Joan was married to Noah. 
you know. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay. You you were also once a film buyer. Now, I don't know what that is. What does that mean? What do you do with that? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, actually, what would happen is if you had a distribution company, uh, you would look for movies to distribute throughout the world. And now you were competing. You couldn't compete with the studios, with the majors of Paramount and MGM, but you could be an independent. And as an independent film buyer, I would go to Cannes or England or in America, screen movies that were available for distribution. Uh, what the public doesn't know is that many movies are made without a sales arm. They don't know where they're going to film is going to go. They raise the money, but they're unable to find a quote unquote distributor. I film buyer is a distributor. I would buy films and then distribute them. When I was at the Walter Reed theaters, and you may remember. Oh, that. I do. I do. I do. Oh, yeah. We had the Baronet, the Coronet, the Fine Arts, the Festival, the Little Carnegie yeah. on Broadway, the Astor, the yeah. Victoria. And you would buy movies for, for, for as a film buyer for that. And that the studios and independent people would offer you movies. And you would decide, A, if you wanted them and what theater you want to put them in. Because sometimes you didn't know, you weren't sure what would be the audience. For example, years ago, there was a movie called The Great White Hope remember with James Earl Jones yeah. and it was good for Broadway because there was a rougher crowd on Broadway but it was also good for the east side so I ended up playing in at the Astor and the Baronet Theater of what we call day and date so that's what you would do you try to f find a movie you wanted and then find try to put it in the theater you wanted to put it in if you were able to I now understand that I didn't before now I would like you to t tell me what has happened to the cockamamie Oscars? Nobody seems to care about it. We don't want to see superhuman people ri riding through the air and stabbing everyone. What is happening to the Oscars? Well, uh, that's a, another good question. And I think what's happened, and sadly for people like you and me, who grew up in a totally different world, is that most of the time now, young people are the buyers. And young people, meaning people in their teens and 20s, they want to see these action films, these X-Men and these uh, whatever we were talking about. They, they want that kind of movie. We, we would pay not to go, you and I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what's happened. And so we, have, we don't have any interest in this. This is not our interest. These are action films. They don't really have anything to do with what your day's problems or even enjoyments are. They're just there. Uh, and no, it's not for me. It's not for me anymore. But I find a lot is not for me anymore, and that's a little sad, but I'm trying to remember the past. Well, maybe this is a dumb question, but how much is luck and how much is hard work when it comes to producing and selling a movie? Well, I, that's a good question, too. I, I think, what, well, I think it's really both. I mean, nobody really starts out to make a bad movie. Nobody. It's not like the the producers, <laughs> the, the the movie and the play. Yeah, Let's see if, yeah. how much we can lose. You really care about it, and you want it to be good. But you never know what will happen. You never know what will strike. For example, we take people like Mel Brooks. People don't know that the producer's movie and his second movie, Twelve Chairs. Both flopped at the box office. They were not successful. People think, oh, The Producers was a huge movie. It was not. And 
In fact, I played it at the Fine Arts in New York and the Granada in L.A. But then he made Blazing Saddles, and then he followed it with Young Frankenstein, yeah. and all of a sudden, those movies came back, and the producers became a cult movie. So, as you say, luck can have a lot to do with it, but really hard work, as you know, you've been doing it all your life, hard work. Yeah. Hard work is the way you win. And, and, it, and you're not guaranteed. Even that's not guaranteed. You have to hold on to the ledge. You have to not let go. You have to, if you believe in what you're trying to do, you just have to keep trying. Julian, you have worked with some of the biggest names. I would like to know, would you maybe tell us of some stars who are pains in the ass and how you handle them? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Cindy, one of the reasons I think I've been able to really get along and show business... Is because you're not doing that. You're not answering questions like that. Is that it? <laughs> you, you know, you're so good. You just fill in the missing blank so yeah. well. Okay. <laughs> I, can but, tell you some, I can tell you some funny stories. That well, I don't I care like. what you tell me. Tell me. Go ahead. Okay. okay. Well, you know, I was very close with George C. Scott, and I loved him. I thought he was a wonderful actor, and, and he had publicly a drinking problem, as you know. Yeah. But... But uh, I said to him once, tell me, what was your favorite movie? And I was sure he was going to say Patton. Everybody would think Patton. He said, Dr. Strangelove. Not even a pause. Dr. Strangelove. I was so surprised that that's what he was his favorite. That was his favorite movie. Um, and he was a very interesting man because I don't drink and he did drink. And one night in California, we both went out to celebrate and I drank. Uh, and we were sit we were at the Bel Air Hotel, we're walking down the beautiful gardens there, we're singing songs, and I say to George, you know, this is terrific. I've, I've got to do this more often. <laughs> George C. Scott grabs my shoulders, Cindy, and yeah. you know how powerful he was, yes. and he looks in my eyes and he says, I don't want you to think drinking is great. I want you to not drink again. I want you to promise me right now you won't drink anymore. Okay, I said, I, I won't drink anymore. And I never did. I never got drunk again. So it's interesting to, to see that he was protective. I guess he realized he didn't want that to happen to me, what had happened to him. Julian, do you have a box set of all your movies? Do you sit home and watch yourself? <laughs> no, I'm not Gloria Swanson, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I understand that. But do you watch your old movies again and again, like a, a Rita Hayworth movie or, or, or a Dustin Hoffman movie? Well, I do. I do watch older movies. Thank God for TCM. I mean, uh, yes, I watch older movies. Some of mine, yes. Uh, but you know the problem in watching what the productions you produce, you often say, oh, I knew I shouldn't have let that happen. Oh, that was wrong. I, I should have fought more on that one, whatever it might be. So it's not as easy to watch that. But it, it's wonderful to be able to feel that you can look back and say, well, I did this that I enjoyed, and I loved this. I mean, the idea that I was able to take Orson Welles' film that had languished for 40 years, his version of Othello, and bring it back, and, and, and we were able to reconstruct it because it was out of sync, and it had problems with music, and we put it together again, and it brought it back, and we went to the Cannes Film Festival with it. So when you look back on things like that, you say, well, I'm, I'm glad I was able to at least do that. Cause, uh, and the thing about the book that's important to me, to try not to hold it against me, is the fact that 
I, I, I wasn't depending on a writer or a director or an actor. I was just me. I was doing it for me. And that was an unusual experience because my whole career has been for really doing it with other people. And this was uh, no collaboration. It was just me writing. First of all, I have to tell you, I thank you for talking to me. The trouble with you is you're boring and you never have anything to say. But <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm going to that Dale Carnegie school, Cindy. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on with me, Julian. I loved it. Thanks, honey. A pleasure. Thank you, hon. Bye-bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Clive Davis is probably the most famous name in music. He has five Grammy Awards. He has created such names as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Pink Floyd, Billy Joel, Donovan, and, of course, he's most famous for Whitney Houston. Please tell me, tell me about the latest Grammys. It starts, it's next week. How, how long do you work in advance working on them? Well, I don't work on the Grammys, but I worked on <laughs> the party for. Uh, it's called my pre-Grammy gala. Yeah, I know. I've been doing yeah. it for decades. So I wait until the Grammy nominations come out. Not that I am a slave to the Grammys or their nominations, but... You really can't approach any artist because, yes, it's a cocktail party, yes, it's a dinner, but once that dinner concludes, I put on a show, and I don't allow any smoothing in between that. Um, so the work begins when the Grammy nominations come out, and I choose about 10 artists. Uh, to perform, which is, apart from the glitter of the audience, it is what makes it special. But how do the Grammys get selected in the first place? We don't know how it actually happens, or at least I don't. Well, the Recording Academy, they have membership, and there's members of those songwriters, arrangers, writers, producers, they are members of the Recording Academy, and they, it's that process for the Grammys. They vote uh, to pick the five nominees, and then there's a process uh, of voting that follows. Clive, how did but you... I have nothing to do with that, Cindy, so there's no connection with that. What I'm known for is the night before, the night before where... Nancy Pelosi, this will be her 23rd straight year with her husband, Paul, attending. Uh, the heads of every record company, uh, most of the motion picture studios, sports personalities, um, obviously film stars, um, and clearly the great producers and artists. So over the years, Whitney has done it maybe it did it maybe six or seven times. I put artists together that never really uh, are usually seen together, like Alicia Keys with Aretha Franklin, or Whitney Houston with Natalie Cole, uh, Rod Stewart with Lou Reed and Slash. You never know who you're going to see. And, of course, 
not allowing any smoothing, I shout out because it's a thousand seats in the grand ballroom of the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and they don't, you know, you really can't, uh, apart from adjacent tables, so that over the years, in between acts, I shout out artists like Prince or Paul McCartney or Sly of the Family Stone, um, you know, and of course, it really keeps things both buzzing and exciting. Oh, we all know about Clive Davis's parties. We all, Everybody knows about that. Have you ever had anybody who has re- not wanted to go or has refused an invitation? Well, when you say refused, there are people that are touring. There are artists that uh, are nowhere near Los Angeles. Uh, but, you know, because we do invite uh, artists, let's say, live in London, um, so that, you know, you get some, not many, uh, but you do get those whose schedules, uh, if they're doing a film, um, you know, if they're working, uh, that are unable to attend. Then there are people who will not want to be in L.A. at that time because they're actually angry at the Recording Academy, feeling spurned uh, and not nominated for whatever the reason. Well, the world knows about the world knows about Clive Davis as the most famous name in music. How far back do you start working on your parties? I wait until the Grammy nominations come out because yeah. if an artist, um, you know, they never know if they're going to be nominated. So that although I don't restrict it clearly to Grammy nominated artists. If, let's say this year, if you were going to go uh, to invite, uh, to perform uh, Doja Cat or Rizzo or uh, Lana, I mean, they will wait. They'll want to know and get confirmation that they're nominated um, (laughs) before uh, they make their judgment. Well... Stanley Tucci played you in Sony's Whitney Houston movie. How did you prep him? Well, you don't prep someone like Stanley Tucci. He was uh, the film director and the producer's first choice. He was my first choice. And um, so that after he accepted the role, uh, I did wait for him. Uh, to to Zoom me so that we spoke for about an hour each um, of two Zoom conversations. And he, obviously, the actor that he is, the uh, talent that he is, he took the responsibility very seriously. Uh, By the time I spoke to him for the first time in order to make that conversation meaningful for him, he had already seen my documentary on Netflix, yeah. um, and he had read my autobiography. So his questions, which were both casual and not tilted in any way, we really just had two one-hour Zoom conversations, and then the day before filming uh, uh, in Boston, I flew up to Boston 
and he and I met in person, uh, I'd say privately uh, for another hour, and then we met together uh, with some of the other cast members and the director and the writer. Clive, how did you start? This is a stupid-ass question, but you're so famous in music. How does this start? I mean, you don't sing yourself. How did you start this? Cindy, my life in music came about totally by accident. Um, I never thought I'd be in the record business, number one. Um, I was a lawyer. Uh, by luck, I was um, at a law firm. You probably heard of it. It was Sam Rosenman's law firm. Rosenman, Colin, Ralph Colin, who represented Bill Paley and CBS. Uh, Rosemond, Colin, K. Patrick, and Freund. I was there three years uh, out of law school from uh, Harvard. And a gentleman who had been at that law firm came to see me and asked who at the law firm was doing, quote, non-litigation work. And it was I, I was doing work for the talent agency, Columbia Artist Management, Inc. And he said, look, I am currently general counsel for Columbia Records, and my number two man is not capable of being number one. If you come to Columbia Records, I guarantee you, you will be general counsel within a year. And, you know, I had no money. My family had no money. I had lost my parents, really, as a teenager. I only had $4,000 to my name when both had passed away. And I knew that at that law firm, they were representing giant either giant corporations or multi-multi-millionaires. So I said, rather than be a service partner, which was as far as I could go there, I went to become general counsel for Columbia Records. There was a man named Goddard Lieberson who became my yeah, mentor. Yeah, 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 head, yeah. Uh, was the head of Columbia Records, very esteemed, very bright. Uh, in any event, Five years later, five years later, and I'm going to tell a story and cut it short, but five years later, when we, on the grounds of, quote, synergy, had bought Steinway Piano and Leslie Speakers and Fender Guitars, Goddard was being made a group president, and he called me and then he said, Clive, I'm going to make you, if you will accept the head of the musical instrument plan. And I said, let me think it overnight. I said, because I don't think I could move. I know that I would have <laughs> yeah. to move to yeah. La Jolla, California. I was going through a divorce. I had two young children. There was no way I could do it. I came back the next morning. God had called me at bright hour of 9.30. I was there. I walked in. He said, look. Our executive vice president, Norman Adler, wants to move to La Jolla. So I can't make you the head of the musical instruments division. So, Clive, I'm going to make you head of Columbia Records. 
That's how I got oh. in the record <laughs> business. Good and, Lord. Uh, with no background in music, I don't read music, I don't play music, and um, but that is the true story. Well, how the hell do you know? What do you do? Do you hum? How do you know? How do you know these these people? How uh, do you know what's my great? Story, my story, we're talking about being made head of Columbia Records in 1965. I watched, I studied, I learned, I listened. I never would do anything. I never dreamt I'd sign an artist. Uh, but I learned one thing. If you were doing well with Tony Bennett, with Streisand, with Andy Williams, you were not versed in what was the upcoming rock area and the rock revolution. Two years later, in 1967, at the Monterey Pop Festival, I went just to see my artist perform. I thought it was just entertaining. It was the first pop festival. And in the afternoon, unknown artists were there. I knew I was out of sorts. I had not heard of what was going on in Haight-Ashbury. They were all wearing, you know, the ladies, the gowns, flowers in your hair. If you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. And we I'm called them schmatas, my, yeah, okay. In my khaki pants and tennis sweater. <laughs> and coming on stage was the unheralded, unknown Janis Joplin as part of the group Big Brother and the Holding Company. And it's there that I got this honest, visceral, fine-tingling feeling because she was breathtaking. And there were no other heads of companies there. I vowed, I, was, I really honestly got an epiphany that I had to try to sign this artist. And I did. I ended up during an era where she signed a new artist, it might cost ten or fifteen thousand. I bought her contract. She had never made an album with the group with anyone, and I bought it for two hundred thousand dollars. And then I proceeded over the next five or six years to sign Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago, Santana. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Donovan. And so that only by trial and error, only by instinct, only by common sense, and waiting for that unusual feeling that someone was unique and special. And when they all broke through, that began my um, life story at the creative helm uh, of both Columbia and the brand new company that I formed afterwards, Arista Records, um, that led to those artists and Barry Manilow and Whitney and Aretha and Dion Okay, Walmart. everybody knows your fame with, with Whitney Houston. So I, I feel like I'm stupid to ask you, but you have to tell me about Whitney Houston. You must tell me when you well, first, first met her. I'm going to be honest. I want everybody that's listening today to see her biopic just out, I want to dance with somebody. It does tell my story with Whitney, but it tells the honest, true story 
of Whitney Houston, and you were all the questions that your audience might have on how we work together, her gift, her genius, the drug addiction that she had to uh, deal with um, and unfortunately lost her life to, her marriage unsuccessful, but you hear the music, that life-changing music uh, that is vibrant today as when we began working together. So it's quite the experience, and I'm really getting hundreds and hundreds of emails of how the movie is affecting people's lives. Okay, I understand um, that. I understand that. I understand that. I also understand that you are my neighbor, and I love you, and I have been invited to your parties, and I have to thank you for being in Florida and talking to me at this moment when I know you'd rather be outside in the sun. I love no, you. but I'd also like for you <laughs> to come to the party. It's it's a week from Saturday uh, in Los Angeles, and you'll have the time of your life. And you'll know everybody in the audience, and you will see music that will dazzle you. And it will be why uh, they come back year after year after year. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you. Thank you, Clive Davis. Thank you, honey. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I just need to let you know a couple of things. You might be interested in hearing that Hugh Jackman's summertime waterfront house is up for rent. You can get it for $495,000 for the summer. It's a cup of emeralds from neighbors Donna or Diddy, and it's 345 feet of beach on Gardner's Bay. It's three bedrooms, a pizza oven, and a media room with a thing that makes ice cream. I'm just letting you know in case you're looking to schlep out there. Now I would like to speak about Brendan Fraser, who's maybe going to grab an Oscar for The Whale. He said... It's butterflies in my stomach if I am actually up for an Oscar. The transformational makeup was a new technology. Because as you know, if you're going to see the movie, he puts on hundreds of pounds. He says, for COVID reasons, we couldn't use traditional modes. So instead, it was a scan in our driveway with an iPad, plus my dog at my ankles, screwing up some of the shots. What this means, I don't know, but that's what Brendan Fraser said, and he's going to be up for an Oscar. He said, they built my body down to the pores and textures of skin wrinkles. It was an absolute transformation. It was designed from the outside in, and I did it from the inside out. That collaboration of inhabiting this actor's body 
changed me physically. The makeup man was Adrian Moreau. He built the fat suit that I wore. Darren Aronofsky put me in touch with the Obesity Action Coalition, tens of thousands of members. These people gave me insight about honesty and who they were and what it was like to be fat and how to survive. Earning their trust, I now have experience of living with obesity. I know what it's like. I know how embarrassing and shameful it can be. When this movie was over, what I felt was I said goodbye to a guy I had really gotten to know well, all of him. The suit weighed over 300 pounds. And what he told me was, Brendan Fraser, that a crew member picked him up if he fell over. Okay, now, coming up also for an Oscar is The Fablemans. And according to an ad man named Sam Ash, who sent me this piece of information, he said there is a mistake in The Fablemans. Yeah, what, how? He said, the family lit the menorah left to right. Those candles are lit right to left. So you have to actually watch the film through a mirror. And you can send that to the people who made the Fablemans. They should know. Okay, I'm going on to Broadway. Broadway is moving. At least some of its theaters are. The famous Drew Jamson's St. James, the Walter Carr, the August Wilson, the Eugene O'Neill, that are playing award winners like Moulin Rouge, Book of Mormon, Hadestown. They got sold. They are now going to be owned by the Ambassador Theatre Group, which owns the Lyric, where Harry Potter's been, and Hudson, which had Death of a Salesman. They were part of the Jujamson group. They are now going to be sold, and they are going to be on another organization altogether. Now, the Jujamson group, which owned it, was run by a nice man who basically wants to be Anna Wintour and is probably going to go into fashion. I would like to say thank you to everyone listening to me. I have loved you. Whether or not you loved me, this is not what I can answer, but I'm sure you adored me like I adored you. And with all the layoffs, I'm going to say, I am sending thank you to you and goodbye to you, and I hope you will be with me again next Sunday at 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. And if you're not, I'll find you. I'll get you. Don't forget, I will get you. Love and thanks, Cindy.